Hello, everyone. This is Scott McNamara bringing you another wonderful episode of What's New in Adaptive Physical Education. Today, we have a amazing, astounding, uh, I don't know what adjectives I can use to describe this researcher, Kathleen Martin Guinness from University of British Columbia. I don't even know if she really considers herself a researcher in the field of adaptive physical activity because she does such a huge range of things, but has really done quite a, a, a number of things in the area of adaptive physical activity um, related to interventions, creating organizations that promote health and wellness for people with mostly physical disabilities, and uh, as well as she looks at knowledge dissemination and how do we get out the word to these uh, um, and all these things. And uh, you have a Wikipedia page, so I think you're like maybe the first person that has a Wikipedia page on my podcast. So how does that feel? How does it feel to have to be the first Wikipedia page owner uh, on the podcast? Wow, that's that's quite a distinction. <laughs> I, I it's funny. Uh, a young person at a university reached out and asked me about creating a Wikipedia page, and I actually thought it was a joke. So, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, well, it worked out well. So, I mean, I, it's like a goal of mine is to have a uh, is to get one of those um, out there. So, um, so yeah, I, I want to start out and just again, like you're a phenomenal researcher and you've done so much already. For the field of adaptive physical activity um, and I want to get to know more about you and, and for our listeners. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in the field of adaptive physical activity or the fields that you study? Sure. Well, first of all, Scott, I wanted to thank you very much for introducing me uh, and inviting me to be part of the podcast today. It's, it's a pleasure and an honor. Uh, and I do also just want to acknowledge that I'm sitting in my office here at the University of British Columbia's Okanagan campus, which is situated on the traditional ancestral and unceded territory of the Salic Okanagan Nation. And uh, with that as a bit of a backdrop, uh, so I've been working in the field uh, for almost 25 years now. And my, so my background in training is in the behavioral sciences aspect of kinesiology. So I'm trained in health and exercise psychology. I did my PhD in kinesiology. And then very early on in my career, I had the opportunity to uh, do research involving people with disabilities, primarily uh, people living with spinal cord injury, but people with other types of physical disabilities as well. And for me, that really just an inspired um, an interest in not just understanding how how to help people with disabilities become more physically active, but really how we could take the lessons that we learn in a lab from whether it's a basic science perspective, understanding theoretical determinants of physical activity, or whether it's a clinical uh, perspective of understanding the benefits of physical activity, but taking that and then moving that out into the real world and understanding how we can generalize and how we can replicate those lessons in the lab in, in big real world settings. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I look at your research, I mean, it, you, you see a picture, uh, you know, it's one that I wish that like we could, like, I, I could see in my own uh, research sometimes. And you see that idea of, you know, interventions that work for physical activity for people with disabilities. And then you also see like actually replicating it and all those things. And we don't have enough of that in our field. So it's, it's, it's wonderful to see that you actually have some, I don't know, like you're, you're really trying to, to make a change because as we both know, the area of health and wellness and physical activity for people with disabilities is not often viewed very positively because it, we often have a lot of deterrence and a lot of you know, statistics that are not that positive. And so to see that you're kind of doing this full circle thing and not just a, a piece of it is really, really, um, yeah, fantastic. So, you know, you've conducted a, a whole lot of studies and you've started different organizations and they all aim to provide physical activity to individuals with disabilities, change health-related behaviors and disseminate knowledge, uh, you know, to the wider audience. And so, you know, as I kind of maybe was just saying, but like, can you explain why you ended up focusing on such a range of topics uh, related to health and disability? That's a great question. So to be honest, 
when I embarked on my career, so I, I got my first faculty position in 1999 after I postdoced. And I started working in the disability area, primarily people spinal cord injury. And what I really wanted to do was design physical activity enhancing interventions. That was my passion. But back then there was so we so little that we knew. We I remember going to the library because 1999 you had to go to the library to find articles. And I was astounded that there were in spinal cord injury and in for most disability types, no information, no studies done on the psychological benefits of activity, nothing done on how to increase physical activity, nothing on correlates or determinants of physical activity. And back then we didn't even have a way to measure physical activity on a large scale for people with spinal cord injury. So 1999, I wanted to do interventions and realized we needed to go back many, many, many steps to measure activity, design measures, uh, measure correlates of activity. We needed to do all these preliminary steps before I could even think about doing interventions. So part of it was out of necessity that with me and my team and my colleagues, we had to build the foundational literature base that's required in order to design physical activity interventions. So I spent, I don't know, eight or nine years doing that, doing an epidemiological study of physical activity for people with spinal cord injury, uh, running studies, theory-based studies of predictors, correlates, and determinants of physical activity understanding psychological outcomes of physical activity. After we did all that, then finally we were in a place to do theory and evidence-based uh, interventions for people with spinal cord injury. And at, by that point, I'd had several PhD students who had uh, studied with me, but then had gone off and started their own careers working with people, children, youth, and adults with different types of disabilities. So at that point, we were able to start designing and testing interventions. That was really fun because that was the 10 year lead up. And then it became a, you know, a matter of, um, I'm very passionate about the, the, the philosophy of nothing about us without us. I think that people with disabilities should be work alongside scientists when we're designing um, and developing research and especially when we're creating interventions. So that happened too along the way when we got to the intervention point, really engaging with the disability community. And uh, from there, I just got frustrated in seeing so many interventions being done in other populations, working, but being published and put on a library shelf and never that, that research never going anywhere. So that frustration combined with working in partnership with disability organizations and people living with disabilities and those organizations saying, all right, now we're ready to take that research and roll it out. That sort of spun my career into this other domain of, of really coming full circle and translating the knowledge that we generated in our research, whether it was interventions or otherwise, and moving that out to the community. Uh, and uh, it, it's really been quite a, a sequential um, uh, systematic approach, I, I'd say, over the last 20 years to, to get to that point. Yeah, again, like, I think you, like, it, it's really cool that you're doing all of it, too, because, and it, and it makes logical sense, I think, that you're, yeah, and, and it, it's pretty amazing that you've done all of that, because I don't think that our field, you know, I've had a lot of researchers on here often, either focusing on a very specific thing, or we often talk about how there's, you know, not, not enough here, not enough, or whatever, and then that we're not and when I go to a conference and I sit around with my colleagues, you know, it's the complaint is that nobody knows what we do, you know, the field of adaptive physical activity. But I don't find that we ever do anything about it either. Um, we just kind of sit around and complain at the conference that nobody knows who we are. And or that that practitioners don't have the information, like they're not well trained or, or whatever. We, those are our common complaints. But it's so it's pretty cool to see you like yeah do that full circle thing of trying to do that and I really applaud you because I think that's what we really need moving forward it's more of that um of that knowledge dissemination I want to go back real briefly to those organizations we talked about so when I looked you up there's a few organizations that you that you work with uh in Canada um that promote physical activity for individuals with disabilities um can you briefly talk about them and what physical activities and, and opportunities that those organizations provide? Sure. So maybe just to set the stage. So in 20, 
2014, uh, I established the Canadian Disability Participation Project. And that's a collaboration with over 50 scientists, community organizations, stakeholders, that all focused on um, enhancing not just the quantity, but the quality of social participation for people with disabilities in employment, uh, mobility, and sport and, and exercise. So I am, I'll talk mostly about our, our sport and exercise work, but um, through the Canadian Disability Participation Project, our partners include, uh, I'll give you some examples at the national level, uh, the Canadian Paralympic Committee. Uh, at, at provincial levels, we work with disability specific organizations such as uh, spinal cord injury or organizations. Uh, and we even work um, locally at uh, the municipal level as well. And uh, in working with these organizations, um, we work with them both. To, first of all, we work with the organizations to identify the research question. So we want to make sure that any research that we embark on is going to produce meaningful results that these organizations can then use to, to enhance their programs, their services, what have you. So we work with them, even going back to writing the grant, before we write the grant, we'll engage with them. We sit down, we determine what the research question is. And then I know many scientists involve their community partners when it's time to recruit participants. And, and that's pretty much the extent of the engagement. But uh, as I said, we work from the designing the question to designing the protocol. The scientists, we then go out and collect the data, often in collaboration with um, our community partners. So for example, I often hire staff from our community partners, so people living with disabilities to come in and actually help run the projects. And then when we have, we analyze the results, we sit down with them, uh, with the community organizations, with people lived experience of disability to help interpret the findings. And in addition to writing scientific articles, they're often um, collaborators on those articles, but we also work with them to figure out the best way to disseminate that information to the communities. Working in, in, in with these, uh, with individuals with disabilities in your communities with the research, how are you finding that that impacts your research as well as maybe impacts them? Yeah, so I we I've hired, so I have people on my staff right now and they have the title of community researchers. And it just, I, I, I get, it's hard even to put into words the, the positive impact that has on the research. Like with the research, I know that our protocols are tight and appropriate and people are going to, uh, we've got a greater likelihood of people adhering to them because people with lived experience of disability have helped design them. When we're running the protocols, I think it is uh, uh, motivating and also comforting for our participants when they come into the lab and, oh, there's a person with a spinal cord injury, just like me. You know, if they're asking me to do A, B, and C, well, you know, I trust them and I, I know that that's appropriate because it's, it's, it's a peer who's asking me for this. And I think like that for me, that's really important to have that credibility in the community that if I'm going out and asking people with the disability to participate in my research, like, I want them to know that I, I have staff, I have people working with me who are shoulder to shoulder with them, that I'm not doing research on them. I hate that idea. I'm doing research with them. And so ultimately as well, because my some of my staff members and my partners are in the community when we're done the research and it's time to push that research out I already have this um, this level of engagement this level of trust uh, and just this level of interest from the community to receive that information and whether that they receive it as guidelines or videos or a podcast even there's that appetite and there's that interest because it's been running through the the entire project so it's um it's hard to get information out there. And I, I, I know that, but there are things that we can be doing as scientists throughout our projects and throughout constructing our research teams to, to help us get it out there. And I really believe that begins and ends with the engagement of people with lived experience of disability. Absolutely. You know, I want to backtrack on that too, is like, because I, I've had a few people talk about, you know, citizen science and participatory action research, or, you know, maybe not even on the podcast, just in conversations with me, the importance of it, but it sounds like you're really living it, um, you know, almost on a, with every project and how, and again, that full circle. And I wonder, like, you know, especially maybe for young researchers or someone listening to this, how did that begin? How did you um, identify that that was such an important aspect to your uh, research? Yeah, uh, I'll be honest. I had a, a, a really great mentor uh, 
and who he, so it was Dr. Keith Hayes, who's a professor at University of Western Ontario, and he encouraged me, and this is going back 15 years ago, to apply for a particular type of grant where you needed to bring on community organizations and community partners. And I was really nervous. Um, I'm not uh, naturally an extrovert. And so this was going to require me to go out and talk to strangers and really push me to speak to people in areas that I didn't know a lot about. Uh, disability sport, for example, back then, I didn't know a lot about that. Um, going into rehab hospitals. And he like practically took me by the hand and introduced me to people uh, and sort of broke the ice for me and, and helped me make those connections. And then once that started, it just didn't stop. Like when you speak to community organizations and realize the need for basic information that they can use to get funding for their programs or information that will help them provide better um, best practices for their patients. When you see the impact that the research that we're doing can have in people's real lives, it's, it's almost addictive to, to be able to, to, to do that. And so from there, after seeing that impact uh, and seeing just, you know, science should be social. It can be very a very lonely enterprise, but sitting with like-minded people, people for whom you know your research can make a difference, that becomes really motivating uh, and encouraging. And it's just so nice to be able to do research with people. So I think that that's how it started. And it's continued because it's such an awesome way to do research. And yes, it is scary. And, you know, continuously, I'm pushed out of my comfort zone. And it's a little bit frightening. I think most scientists I've had that experience of going out and speaking to community groups and not knowing how people are going to respond to your message. But these are good things. Like we, we should be accountable. Most of us are funded with public money. We have a responsibility to be accountable with our science and to share the results. But um, that's, that's my story. That's, that's how it came to be. I, 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 one other thing I want to mention is my, I have a colleague, uh, Dr. Heather Gainforth, and she's just developed uh, what she calls integrated knowledge translation principles or guiding principles for doing research involving the spinal cord injury community. And I think these are principles that can be applied to doing this type of community engaged research with any disability community. And I encourage people to take a look at them. They're published in archives, of physical medicine and rehab, but they're principles co-developed with people with lived experience of disability that really help to guide how to engage uh, with people with lived experience and organizations to, to do this type of community engaged research. Absolutely. I want to stay on this because um, I think we're, we're definitely like going in the route of like knowledge translation right now. So let's stay on there. Sure. And, and, and with that, you know, it's, it's something that like in my research, but I, I, I sometimes feel like I'm and I'm just starting to get at it in some of the papers I'm writing right now and some of the things I'm doing right now and this podcast about knowledge translation. But I often feel very alone in the field of kinesiology or especially APA, uh, adaptive physical activity um, stuff. I, I feel very alone that I don't feel like there's much emphasis on it at all. And uh, so, so briefly, you know, I've seen you we're kind of hinting at it, but how would you define knowledge translation and why do you think it's important? Sure. So I, I define knowledge translation as getting the right information to the right people at the right time and in the right format. So, and it, it's kind of funny to hear you say that it's not it's not done to the full extent in APA because I, like I think anytime you're taking the knowledge that you have and applying it in a phys ed context in the rehab context, like you are doing KT knowledge translation, but you know I do hear you that uh, we we, and I say we very generally need to be doing it at a, a much greater scale. Uh, and it's important for all those reasons I mentioned, like we are funded with public money. Uh, we should be striving to, to evolve and to encourage people to use best practices and to make decisions based on scientific evidence. And as scientists, I, I think that's a, a social responsibility that we have is to, uh, is to guide people to use what we know are best practices or what we know the evidence states to use that in practice. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I, I think that there's been a, a lot there. And when I, when I say it, you know, I think I'm saying it from, because obviously as we're hinting at again, like 
we're talking about getting the information out to the individuals experiencing disability. We're talking about getting it out there to their families, to practitioners, and then even maybe to a wider, just the general public too. And then there's different levels of knowledge that needs to get out there too. So it can get really, really complicated, I think, when we talk about knowledge translation, what it is, and how it can work and, and all of that. Um, you know, as, as we talk about that, can you talk a little bit about some of your successes and challenges with trying to get this information out to, um, you know, different audiences? Yeah, I love that you're, you're, you're hitting on that because I remember when, um, so the, the first organization that I led was Spinal Cord Injury Action Canada, and that was focused on advancing physical activity in people's spinal cord injury. And we'd spent a couple of years developing the research and then we were like, okay, time to push it out there. And we had the same thought as you did, like, oh my goodness, there are so many people. There are people with spinal cord injury. There's uh, rehab specialists, there's community organizations. Where do we start? And that's, I think that was such an important sort of turning point in our thinking and an important lesson for anyone who is doing knowledge translation is that you, you, can't, uh, uh, you can't hit everyone all at once. You really have to pick an audience and know that audience well. And it's tough because we had to set aside, uh, at that point we set aside um, healthcare professionals and we decided we're just gonna focus on people living with spinal cord injury. That's gonna be our target audience. We're gonna set aside uh, physiotherapists and fitness trainers. And it's hard because you do wanna share your message with everyone, but if you're going to do it right and have any kind of impact, you really have to just, I think, choose one or two audiences at a time and then go in and spend time with those audiences to know what type of information they need and what kind of format they want it in. Uh, and you're spot on, Scott, that you can give very detailed information, you know, what types of exercises to do and what are the key behavior change techniques and why do they work? But that's where it comes back to knowing your audience and what level of information is appropriate. I think a, a good example, uh, we've on sciguidelines.com, We've published information on um, the physical activity guidelines for people with, living with spinal cord injury. And on that website, we were really deliberate in having different layers of information. So it, the most basic part of that website is just the guidelines. But then we recognize that there'll be people living with spinal cord injury. And this website is also for, for fitness professionals uh, that might want to know, well, where did these guidelines come from? And then some might want specific resources on what types of exercises to do. So I, I think having sort of a layered approach to knowledge translation can be really helpful. Uh, recognizing that there's some people who aren't ready for all of that information. And there are others who are. And by virtue of knowing your audience, you can kind of, uh, it's almost like it cafeteria style knowledge translation, have uh, information in different formats for different segments of that particular audience. Yeah, and I think I think I like how you said a cafeteria style, because that's the thing is that becomes so overwhelming with it is that you do need all these different kind of flavors and all these different types. And, and it's, you know, um, it is difficult, but it's also I think what really needs to happen because we do know we have some evidence now to show, you know, what we know what works to some degree, um, but I, I find that oftentimes there's still very little, um, you know, yeah, not everyone knows those things. Um, you know, while we're talking about that, I want to maybe circle back to some other points in a little bit, but like while we're talking about that, I, I've seen that you've done a lot of research on, um, you know, talking about the need for physical activity guidelines for people with disabilities and the need for these uh, types of guidelines. Um, can you, you know, and for specific disabilities as well, um, like, is that something that, and I think maybe you, you hit on like developing these and, and all of these things, but like, how do you see um, that growing so that we can create these stronger guidelines and then how we disseminate them? Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. I teach courses in health and exercise psychology. And usually I say, look, knowledge, giving people knowledge doesn't work. That we need to do far more than give people just basic information. People know physical activity is good for them. It's far more than that. But unfortunately, I think in the disability realm that there's still a, such a lack of basic fundamental information on what activities to do, what's appropriate, what intensities, that when you talk about disability, we still need that basic fundamental information. And we need it not just for people living with disabilities, 
But for parents of children with disabilities who are anxious about getting their kids started in activity, for uh, fitness programs and rec programs, you know, we still hear these stories of people with disabilities showing up at gyms and they're turned away because the people at the gyms don't know what to do with them. Like that infuriates me to no end because that's just a lack of basic fundamental information. And certainly there's lots of types of information that are needed, but physical activity guidelines I think are a fundamental piece of that information. If we just at least can tell people what to do for how long, at what intensity and give them some examples, like that's, that's step one. So recently, a few months ago, the World Health Organization, I was very pleased to see that they launched physical activity guidelines for people living with disabilities. So that was a big step forward to acknowledge that people with disabilities are encouraged to be active, here are some guidelines. And the guidelines are you know, identical to what they are for the general population, 150 to 300 minutes per week of moderate to vigorous physical activity. Um, they're the same as the general population guidelines because the evidence that were used to develop those disability guidelines for the WHO, they, they just used able-bodied evidence. They didn't use disability specific evidence. So uh, along with some of my colleagues, we've argued that for people with certain types of disabilities, we really need to be formulating disability specific guidelines using disability specific evidence. There are disabilities, uh, for example, neurological disorders, uh, people have had amputations. We're learning more and more that the physiological response to exercise for these people with these types of impairments is different than what it is for the general population. Uh, in particular, people who have disruption of the autonomic nervous system, their bodies simply don't respond physiologically to exercise the way that the bodies of people without autonomic nervous system impairment um, uh, respond. So for those reasons, at this point, we don't know if 150 to 300 minutes per week of physical activity result in the same health outcomes for people with these impairments as it does for the general population. In fact, I would argue that I could probably count on one hand the number of studies, probably maybe even two fingers, the number of studies that have looked at the long-term effects of doing 150, 300 minutes per week of physical activity in any impairment group. So, you know, for those reasons, let alone that people with disabilities have different needs and barriers and preferences for physical activity than the general population, um, I, along with my colleagues, we've argued that for certain disability groups, we need to have dis disability specific guidelines based on disability specific evidence. And we've formulated those guidelines uh, for people living with spinal cord injury and for people living with multiple sclerosis. And I anticipate there'll be more of those guidelines coming out in the next couple of years. So, so you created those, is that what you're saying? Those, yes, those. I led a, led a team, I've co-led a team that developed a scientific evidence-based spinal cord injury exercise guidelines, and my colleague, Dr. Amy Latimer-Chung, led the team that developed the guidelines for people with multiple sclerosis. Yeah. Now, with, with, with the WHO releasing those, because I did see those guidelines, and I saw, I almost just skimmed through it, because it didn't look like, you know, yeah, it was like, same thing. Um, so... Not to, not to get on the bad side of the who or whatever, but it seems a little uh, irresponsible for them to put those out. I know it's important to, to acknowledge people with disabilities, but not just as a simple check mark um, to say that we've acknowledged them, let's move forward. So what you're doing and what you're saying, I think makes so much sense. Uh, we, you know, oftentimes if somebody asks me if somebody has muscular dystrophy and asks me some broad guidelines, I have nothing really I can say. Um, and so, you know, it's more, yeah, so I think what you're saying is wonderful. So can you share some of the, do you have some of the broad guidelines that you could share about, phys, um, about physical disability, spinal cord injury, and multiple sclerosis? Yeah, absolutely. Well, with regards to the spinal cord injury exercise guidelines, so the, for the spinal cord injury exercise guidelines, there's a guideline to improve physical fitness, and there's a separate guideline to improve cardiometabolic health. The reason why there's two separate guidelines is because we have so little evidence right now on how to use exercise to improve cardiometabolic health in that population, but we've got lots of good quality uh, evidence for using exercise to improve fitness. So the guidelines to improve fitness for people's spinal cord injury are uh, 20 minutes of uh, moderate to vigorous intensity physical activity twice per week, plus strength training activities twice per week. 
And the guideline to improve cardiometabolic health is 30 minutes of moderate to vigorous intensity physical activity three times per week. And I should say that these are minimums. These are minimums based on the evidence we've seen in the research literature showing the minimum amount of activity required to significantly improve fitness and cardiometabolic health. Yeah, that's, that's uh, awesome that you have that. Now, have you talked to any of those types of organizations or anything to adopt those specific things so that we can um, acknowledge the science at, at these larger kind of organizations? Do you mean, have we spoken to organizations to implement the spinal cord injury guidelines? Yeah, or, like even nationally or even internationally, like the WHO. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really proud. So we'll put, put the WHO discussion aside for a second. Uh, yeah, I'm really sorry. proud that the SCI guidelines, we uh, reappraised the literature uh, a few years ago. I'm going to say 2019. My COVID calendar is kind of messed up in my head. Um, but we had uh, initially created guidelines in 2012. And so the SCI guidelines were being reaffirmed and reestablished on an international basis. And I'm really proud of the fact that the guidelines are truly being used internationally. Um, one of the greatest moments of my career was back in 20, I'm going to say uh, 16, when I visited Stoke Mandeville Hospital in the UK, the home of the Paralympic Games, and the SCI exercise guidelines were being used in rehab at Stoke Mandeville Hospital. Over the past couple of years, I've worked hard with Dr. Vicki Goosey Tolfrey from um, Loughborough University to uh, work with our Asian collaborators. We're working with four different countries in Asia. Uh, we translated the guidelines both culturally and uh, in terms of language, and they're being implemented in hospitals there. Uh, we're running a, a study right now here in the province of British Columbia where the guidelines are being implemented in the rehab hospital and then supported out in the community through one of our community organizations, Spinal Cord Injury BC. So we are seeing good uptake um, internationally. Again, if you look at our website on sciactioncanada.ca, you can see all the many language translations of the guidelines that have been done around the world. And I personally haven't done those translations, rather collaborators, scientists, clinicians around the world from uh, from Iran to Sweden to Spain to Asia, it's been this uh, this groundswell of support and this, this organic uptake and translation of the guidelines into those countries so they can be used in those countries. That's wonderful. Is it, um, are you or are you hoping uh, to see other disabilities kind of um, disability groups have these guidelines at some point so that they can also, um, you know, yeah, help, help them as well. Yeah, so I think if it makes sense. Um, so I think that for many disability groups, uh, for example, uh, people who have visual impairments, uh, people with intellectual disabilities, the WHO guidelines might be entirely appropriate. I mean, that I would really like to have evidence before saying that they're appropriate, but I, I think uh, feasibly if the physiological response to exercise is similar, and certainly if the social and the psychological context of the physical activity are similar, which they may or may not be, then sure, a generic guideline will work. Um, but if we're dealing with groups where that physiological response is different, where the barriers are so great, where potentially the the risks might outweigh the benefits of doing 150 to 300 minutes per week of activity. For example, uh, we don't know the impact on shoulders of uh, someone who wheels a wheelchair all day, what the impact might be of that. Then I think we should be looking to develop disability specific guidelines. But at the minimum, I believe that exercise guidelines for people with disabilities should be based on evidence derived from people with disabilities, that we shouldn't just be translating the evidence over. And if that means developing separate guidelines, I think we need to look at that. But at the minimum, I would really like to see us um, using scientific evidence for, for these guidelines. Yeah, it's versus um, just having your research sit on somebody's shelf kind of idea, right? Like that we actually want to use it. I mean, it's, I, I, I think all the things that you're saying, just, it's phenomenal. Um, and you're actually doing it. It's incredible because, yeah, I think these are super important things. And, and to me, what you're asking for is just logical. You know, you're just asking that we use evidence. And, and yes, maybe it doesn't, maybe it will we have is fine, but we can't just say it's fine and just, and just you know, we no. can't just 
the general that, population okay. would never stand for being given guidelines that were based on evidence from, I don't know, horses or, you know, some other population. But I, I so I don't understand why we think it's okay to give people with disabilities guidelines based on evidence from an entirely different population. But I, I know there are people who, who uh, don't necessarily hold that same philosophy as, as I do but uh, well, as you said if we find that there's not conflicting evidence then you're then it's totally fine to use the same guidelines right but if we don't have that we're just doing weird guesswork and, and acting like we're much more informed than we are yeah. um yeah so again I think what you're doing as far as all like there's so many different um uh, things that you're involved in that you're just you're doing such tremendous work with um yeah I, you know I I, I want to backpedal though um to, to something like just talking about all the things that you're doing and we've, we've talked a little bit about you know the organizations that you work with a lot about your knowledge dissemination and, and what you're doing and all of those and and you know you mentioned that you have this you know um kind of like a physical activity psychology kinesiology background and a lot of your stuff's also about shaping behaviors and such um and you kind of glossed over some of that in your interventions so i want to get back to that for a second and, and you know can, can you talk to you know we've, we've mentioned the, the need to, to understand motivation and all these contextual things when we're talking about physical activity uh can you briefly talk about that and some examples of how motivation and um you know all these different barriers and such can affect someone's uh, ability or, or want to be physically active? Sure. That's a big question, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe a, a few things that I can hit on. Um, is I, I think over the past 10 years, uh, behavior change has truly become a, a science that uh, over historically there's been a lot of frustration that uh, we can't change people's behavior or we develop these interventions and behavior doesn't change but I, I think historically we've just been kind of throwing darts at a wall trying goal setting trying problem solving trying self-monitoring but over the past 10 years with uh, Susan Mickey's work behavior change has, has really become a true science and I think it's far more complicated than any of us really appreciated uh, but with understanding that complication, we're also coming around to understanding specific, valuable um, key ingredients of behavior, exercise behavior change and health behavior change in general. So when you talk about uh, barriers, we know that uh, people with disabilities face over 200 barriers to physical activity participation. Some of those barriers rest within the individual, like motivation or self-efficacy, Many, many of them exist within the community and policy environments. We know that a lack of transportation, at least in um, high income countries, is probably one of the number one barriers to activity participation for, for people with disabilities. So definitely when we're talking about changing behavior, uh, we do need to look at, at the whole system. Now, I don't believe, uh, you know, if we build it, they will come, that it's just a matter of providing transportation and building facilities. We do need to uh, prepare people uh, to give them the confidence, to give them the motivation, to give them the ability to start thinking about the problems that they might encounter to getting on the bus and getting to the, the facility. And that's where uh, a lot of behavior change techniques can come into play. So from a science perspective, from the science of, of behavior change, uh, the most fundamental thing we need to do is to understand uh, people's their, their sense of their capabilities to be active, their opportunities to be active and their motivations to be active. Taking our time and digging in and there are now very good tools and theories and measures available to use both quantitatively and qualitatively to understand those capabilities, opportunities and motivations. Once we have those figured out for an individual or even a, a small group of individuals, from there we can start mapping uh, those challenges to specific behavior change techniques and specific more general approaches that we can use to facilitate behavior change for that individual or for those people. Uh, and we, um, in the work that we do at the individual level, I found that behavioral counseling, physical activity counseling, 
is probably one of the most effective uh, sort of package of intervention strategies that we can use. We've done a lot of behavioral counseling in, in my uh, lab. We've run um, a Canadian uh, physical activity counseling program for Canadians uh, with disabilities. And that really involves getting on an individual level to understand, as I said, those barriers, facilitators, and then to targeting um, some key behavior change techniques for people with disabilities. We've actually, uh, with one of my students, we did a meta-analysis to look at what seemed to be the most effective behavior change techniques for people with disabilities and interventions. Uh, and it's probably not surprising, but uh, uh, self-monitoring, problem solving, providing people with individualized feedback, those are, are probably the most important ones, at least in the interventions that have been conducted so far. Well, that was a big question. That was a big answer. So uh, yeah, I mean, Obviously, those are, are, you know, there's so much there uh, and what you've already done is quite a bit. Um, yeah, you know what, I guess my follow up question, I know you've kind of laid out like, okay, what are some of the main things and it sounds like a lot of individual, um, you know, coaching and, and individual things are really what drives us and obviously the barriers are transportation has always been a barrier from everything I've ever been a part of cost and um, attitudes are often something that's come up in the stuff I've done, a, 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 or at least a feeling of people not wanting them there. Yep. Um, so that those are often things. And, and I want to, you know, we, we, I think we've been talking a lot about the research and such. And I want to know if I have a, 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 a I have a lot of practicing physical educators that listen to this podcast and students that want to become physical educators or sometimes pre-PTs or OTs as well. But um, with that, what would you, if they came to you and then wanted to ask about how are they going to get their kids that are um, experiencing disability to make meaningful long-term change, uh, you know, within, in their, you know, servicing many, many kids at once and might not have the time or ability to kind of individualize that much, how, how, what could we give them as far as a behavior shaping technique? Yeah, so... Again, I'm really simplifying this into a nutshell and uh, certainly appreciate, I, I mean, for physical education teachers to be with a, a large group of students. Um, I think everyone has their hook. So I think first and foremost, you wanna find what that person values that can be used as a hook to motivate physical activity. Uh, I've heard, um, you know, for, for adults, it's often, you know, I, I want to be able to play with my grandkids. Uh, for a person with spinal cord injury, it can be, I want to be able to put on my own trousers in the morning. Uh, for a child, it can be as simple as I want to be able to play with my friends. But I, I believe that everyone has their own personal hook. And the challenge for a physical education teacher, a PT or OT, is to find that, that meaningful hook for that person. Once that's established, the next thing is to figure out, you know, what are, what are the one or two key barriers that are getting in the way of physical activity for that person? And what are the opportunities? You know, do they have a, a space where they can do some strength training in their home? If it's a, a child, is there an opportunity for them to be part of a program or do they have a peer that they, they like to play with? Like, where are those opportunities? And based on those opportunities and barriers, it's about sort of figuring out that, that magic sort of in-between space to eliminate the barriers by leveraging the, the opportunities to be active. I think from there, the best, the, the most effective strategy, and we use this in my lab all the time, and it always astounds me when we increase people's physical activity three or fourfold over the course of a, a week or a month, and that's to get people to plan the activity. So if it's an adult, get them to crack open the calendar and sit down and just put in the calendar what days they plan to be active, at what times, for how long, and what they plan on doing. And there really is something magical about putting it in the calendar that people are more likely to do it. Likewise for children, it could be working with the parents as well to, to do that scheduling piece. And while doing that, to think about what types of barriers you might encounter or the parent might encounter in getting that child to the activity or actually doing the activity and anticipate what those barriers might be and develop plans to overcome them. So for example, someone might say, uh, well, I'm gonna go for a walk around the block on Tuesdays for 20 minutes. 
but let's say it rains or it snows, having a, a backup plan that, okay, if I can't go around the block, I'm going to walk up and down the corridor of my apartment building, or I'm going to put on uh, some music and, and dance for, for 10 minutes. So these are, um, uh, those key steps, I think, while I'm trying to put things in a nutshell, I think that the principles of those can are all very effective for behavior change, at least getting the process started. And of course, long-term maintenance, we, we have to think of as a, almost as a separate entity that starting a behavior is not the same as maintaining it, but those continuous check-ins of barriers and developing uh, action plans, those can be used to help sustain the behavior over the long-term. Yeah, wonderfully put. I think those are really, really great strategies that practitioners could absolutely use, including myself uh, working with. Yeah, and I, I, a lot of the things that you're talking about probably can be used for behavior change outside of physical activity too, right? So um, wonder, wonderful information. Um, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I'm, I'm going to ask kind of just broadly, you know, I, like wrapping up our conversation, I think we've talked about a lot in, in an hour. And I want to know, though, um, with all these different things that you're, you're doing, um, how do you see your work progressing uh, over the next two years? And, and yeah. That's another big question. <laughs> I think uh, so where my lab is focused now, and I have to say COVID is that uh, severely interrupted us, but where we are going in the next couple of years is continued work with the spinal cord injury exercise guidelines. I'm working on, uh, right now we're doing a, a project where we are testing the effects of the guidelines on a wide range of psychological and fitness outcomes. In addition, as I mentioned right now, we know that those guidelines are effective for fitness and cardiometabolic outcomes, but we want to know what about the effects on pain, on inflammation, on uh, a wide range of psychosocial outcomes. So the long-term plan is to continue testing the guidelines, to deliver them in communities, uh, to show that we can um, promote physical activity and get people up to the level of physical activity, guideline activity in their communities, not just in, in clinical or, or research settings, and continue to look at uh, the benefits. And of course, meshed on top of that is continued work to, uh, to take our research findings and to push them out and to uh, translate and implement in, in communities around the world. Well, let me, add, let me um, follow up with an even broader question. So more than just like what you want to do with your own research and stuff, how, like where do you see us going and where would you like us to be in the next five to 10 years as far as um, health and physical activity initiatives for people with disabilities across the world? Yeah, so I'll talk about research and I'll talk about practice. So I, I, we just uh, published a paper in The Lancet on physical activity, uh, a global perspective. And to, when we were writing that paper, what I did was I went into the uh, research published in, in the world's top five uh, medical journals over a 20-year period. And with my students, we physically counted the number of papers that were on the health of people living with disabilities, disabilities broadly defined. So out of almost 28,000 papers, uh, I believe it was 77 papers, so 0.3% of all the studies published in those top journals were on the health of people with disabilities. That's appalling. When 15% of the world's population are comprised of people with disabilities and less than 1% of the medical research is on those populations, we need to do better. And it's not that there isn't research going on, that research just isn't making its way into the journals that clinicians and practitioners are using. Uh, we've got biases in those journals with the research that they'll publish. They don't appreciate that we're always working with small samples. As a starting point, we need to start seeing our, re our research published in those, uh, those, those high, um, high impact outlets. And I truly appreciate the disability specific journals. They are so valuable, but we're not reaching the audience that we, we could reach if we weren't bottlenecked with, with these journals. So on a global level, I want to see more high quality research being published in those high impact journals and getting information to the people who can use it. On a practical side, I want to see practitioners, whether it's PTs, OTs, physical education teachers, uh, rec therapists, what have you, I want them to have access to that evidence. I want to see firewalls and paywalls come down, which means that our, our practitioners cannot access the best available evidence. 
And on the flip side, I want more scientists to be working to, to jump over those paywalls and get information to the people who can use it in meaningful formats, whether it's guidelines or videos or how-to manuals, so that we can have uh, the people on the front lines delivering physical activity programs for people with disabilities using the best available evidence that there is. Well said. I mean, like, that was powerful. Uh, and um, yeah, I think that is, I, I, I'm like astounded with like how much my views are aligning with yours because I don't often hear the things that I, I feel and you're saying them very, like, you know, very nicely. Uh, but like, I, you know, I, again, like, I just, I sometimes feel like, and I, I identify myself as like an adaptive physical activity researcher. And, um, you know, I feel like in that, that little, that field that we have, that we're often not talking about these, these global thoughts of how do we, how do we make meaningful change for a large group of people? I often find we're talking about a, a very small group or we're talking about um, you know, or we're not talking about knowledge dissemination at all, rather than just we build up, we come, they'll come, right? Like I'll do this great research paper and then, you know, just everyone loves it or whatever it is, right? So, uh, and you're really talking about, um, you have a, a global perspective and a view of, of how we can actually get change done. And it's, it's motivational because sometimes I worry in our field that we're very like, yeah, I feel like we're in a vacuum and, um, yeah, we're only talking to ourselves. And then even sometimes with that, we're still struggling with that. And um, so it's promising to hear people like you are, are doing wonderful things um, at all these different junctures. So um, well, maybe yeah. if I could add one thing to that, I should also mention, we know so little about what's happening in low and middle income countries that uh, I think there's some, I think there is some good research going on there, but it's not making its way to us. Uh, and I, I think the barriers that we know face, that are facing people with disabilities, there are more barriers and more complex barriers in those low and middle income countries. Um, and this is something that we, we barely touch upon in, in the research literature. Uh, so definitely, I think that that's an, another place where we need to devote our efforts is understanding and supporting uh, and, and learning from these countries. And, and you hit on an important topic too about these high end academic journals um, not accepting low sample sizes or maybe if English proficiency has always been an issue too um, of things that are really quite biased because if you're working with someone with spina bifida and you get a sample size of 12 you're not doing too bad you know so however if you're yeah these um in you're also talking about an issue again when you're talking about that of how do we get this information out to the masses and um, these these journals often want us to write in a very very um, difficult, not not something that you read over. Um, often people are reading, you know, at the fireside. Uh, it's it's difficult, you know, these things are difficult to read. And so we we often put a lot of barriers in the in the field of academia ourselves that prevent um, good comprehensive research to be be published and then also disseminated. So, well, thank you so very much for coming on um, my podcast. And, and this was a, a very humble experience for me. So I really appreciate you coming on it and talking about all the great things that you're doing. Oh, it was my pleasure, Scott. Thank you for challenging me with some of those uh, big picture questions and forcing me to think at a, at a much higher level than I, than I often do. This was a lot of fun. I try to do that.